0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we like to begin our show with a prayer, and we will be praying the
1: Angelus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The angel of the Lord declared unto Mary, and she conceived of the Holy Spirit. Hail Hail Mary, Mary, full full of of grace, the Lord Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, women, and and blessed blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Jesus. Holy Holy Mary, Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, sinners, now and at at the hour of our death. death. Amen. Amen holy, holy mary, mary mother of god pray, pray for, for us sinners, sinners now and at, at the hour, hour of our death. death amen pray for us o holy mother of god that we may be made worthy of the promises of christ let us pray pour forth we beseech you o lord your grace into our hearts that we to whom the incarnation of christ your son was made known by the message of an angel may by his passion and cross be brought to the glory of his resurrection. Through the same Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
2: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop talks about the legacy of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., what we can learn from his heroic life dedicated to upholding the dignity of every human person and the work that's still left to do. Then it's on to the biblical figure of Melchizedek and his connection to Christ, followed by listeners submitted questions. To submit yours, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash askbishop or download the Redeemer Radio app onto your smartphone or tablet and select Ask Your Questions.
0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and we're actually pre-recording this because, Bishop, right now, as people are listening to this, uh, you
1: are in Panama for World Youth Day. Yes, I will be there when this is being aired. We could have done this via, radio, via telephone. We should have. We should have. I could have taken time off, but that's all right.
0: Well, what we have planned actually is next week we will be doing a special live episode of Truth and Charity right after you get back. So we'll get caught up on all, all that. Uh, but before we get to talking about World Youth Day, yesterday what was... What if I get lost in the rainforest <laughs> and I don't make it back, Kyle? Is is this a threat? Are you, <laughs> Are you making plans to get lost? Because that's... That's not allowed. Uh, uh, so but yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, and he would be turning 90 this year. And uh, I didn't realize he was only 39 when he was killed. I just turned 39 and thinking, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> like he, yeah. was, he was changing the world. Uh, any thoughts on Martin Luther
1: King Jr. and his life? You know, I was, um, I'm trying to think, when he was assassinated, I was probably 10 or 11 years old, and I still remember it. Hmm. Uh, It was just such a tumultuous year because Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in 1968, and Martin Luther King, and... There was just so much upheaval in society, and mm-hmm. but he was really a shining star in so many ways because of his, I always say, by the way, I don't just say Dr. Martin Luther King, I like to say, say Reverend Doctor, sure. because I think it's forgotten that he was a Christian pastor, he right. was a Baptist minister. Because everything that he did was really motivated and inspired by his faith in Jesus Christ. So I see a lot of, of things that we can learn from Reverend Martin Luther King, especially you know something so fundamental to our faith, the dignity of every human life, mm-hmm. the church's emphasis on the inherent dignity of every human being from conception to natural death. And Martin Luther King upheld the dignity of others and of course most known for his upholding the dignity of people of various races Mm -hmm. and the African Americans whose dignity was trampled on throughout American history going back to slavery. When I think of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., I think of his efforts to lift up those who were oppressed, those whose dignity was not and equality was not being respected. So he's a hero for many. But the way he did it, he did it through nonviolence. That's yeah. another part of his Christian faith. And I think that resonated so much, for example, with Pope Paul VI, St. Paul VI. I remember. When Martin Luther King visited Pope Paul VI, I think it might have been in like 1964 or 65. He went to the Vatican and met with the Pope. Hmm. It was a great experience, and and uh, Martin Luther King spoke about it very highly. There was another thing that there was a gr- wonderful cooperation between Dr. King and the and the Catholics, and and um, he was very ecumenical, and I think he exuded this ecumenical spirit because he enlisted. Catholics and other Christians and people of other faiths into this movement for equal rights. And I think that resonated with us and with Mm -hmm. our faith, the idea that we're all created in God's image and likeness and that every human person has dignity. And this um, condemnation of racism, we've definitely shared so much. And of course, many priests and religious sisters worked with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in the civil rights movement. I think another thing to think about is he, he gave hope to people. I mean, it wasn't... I mean, we, we think of his great speech, I Have a Dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still can resound, you know, when you think about that. But the whole idea was Christian. It was overcoming the darkness with light, overcoming falsehood with truth. Right. It was overcoming violence with love this is what it was all about that there's a book that he wrote called strength to love and he said darkness cannot drive out darkness Mm -hmm. only light can do that he said hate cannot drive out hate Hmm. only love can do that well that's the christian message yeah you know so we're called to be witnesses of the light and to allow Jesus to dispel the darkness of injustice. So there's a lot of lessons we can learn from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's a good thing for us this week and and every year on the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday to recall some of these basic principles that he stood for. One of my favorite writings of his was his letter from the Birmingham jail uh-huh. If you haven't read it, it's, um, and in it, he, I see so much resonance with Catholic teaching. And he actually quotes St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas in that letter, where he talks about how an unjust law is no law at all, Yeah, which really is a very Catholic idea in, in the way we look upon how civil law needs to be congruent with natural law. Mm-hmm. So that's very Catholic. And I see that in his letter from the Birmingham jail.
0: One of his famous quotes is, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That was in 1963. Where do you think we are in getting towards that dream? I, I feel like we've made a lot of progress but
1: we're not quite there. Would you agree? I agree 100%. We've definitely made progress, but we're not yet there. There's still prejudice. There's still discrimination. Racism is so deeply rooted in our history that even, even today you'll see ugly expressions of racism that creep up now and then i mean a couple years ago charlottesville and you know there's still these fringe groups racist Mm -hmm. ideologies neo-nazi kinds of groups but i think even more subtly sometimes the way we might look upon people of other races it may not be intentional but might be stereotypical thoughts or whatever right you know, so, so yeah, we still have, we still have a long way to go that, um, not to judge people by the color of their skin. I would add to that by not just color of their skin, but by other external factors, whether someone's an immigrant or not, or, mm. you know, ethnicity, uh, as well as race, there's all kinds of prejudices that, that can lurk within us.
0: Yeah. Speaking of different races, different ethnicities, as people are listening to this, we mentioned that you are down at World Youth Day in Panama, which brings together mostly Catholics, but I'm sure there's plenty of non-Catholics there as well from all over the world. All nationalities, all races come together to celebrate their faith uh, with Pope Francis and with Bishop Rhodes. (laughs) (laughs) So I know... Whenever you first came to this diocese, one of the stories that I've heard was you said, "What's our World Youth Day plans?" And they said, "We don't really have any." He's like, "Well, you do now." (laughs) And so, why is we
1: went to Madrid? Why is World Youth Day so important to you? Because of precisely what you said—an experience of the universality of the Church. Uh All the young people who've gone on World Youth Days are changed. Yeah, they see what it means to be Catholic, to be together with other young people from countries all over the world of all these different languages, ethnic groups and races and filled with the joy of the gospel. It's something we can talk about, but really to experience it is amazing. One of my favorite, or one of the most profound things in my life that affected me was studying in Rome because Mm -hmm. in my classes were students from all over the world. And I just think the universality of the church is something we shouldn't take for granted, it's really beautiful. The fact that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and we, we come from all these different countries and and uh, with all our differences and all the diversity, yet we're all so united. Kind of reminds me, I love the image of St. Peter's Square with the uh, the colonnade it's like two arms going forth embracing the world hmm. and that's really what the catholic church is to be is to be the universal body of christ that embraces all people of every race nation language culture and that's what world youth day experience is all about yeah
0: what are you most looking forward to about the trip and some of the things that you guys
1: are going to be able to do while you're there? You know, I think what I'm looking forward to the most is just having the time with the young people from our diocese, uh-huh. obviously meeting bishops and young people from around the world. But I'm really looking forward to the quality time with our own young people and mm-hmm. also trying to and, and help and see how they experience World Youth Day, yeah. you know, praying with them and having some meals with them and walking with them, hiking with them, all the things that are part of world youth day. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah. What are some of the things that you're going to be doing on the trip? Well, we have a few diocesan masses Mm -hmm. on days that we don't, have the general masses with the young people from around the world. There are a few days where our masses are just our diocese. So I'm really looking forward to those. I'm looking forward. Uh, one day we're going to go hiking in the rainforest, tropical rainforest. Uh-huh. That'll be fun to remember to bring mos- mosquito repellent. <laughs> um, the, uh, the other thing is, um, obviously the big events with the Holy Father Yeah, you know especially the the way of the cross on Friday and well there's an opening ceremony too with the Pope and then there's the Saturday night vigil Mm -hmm. and then the Sunday mass with the Pope the Saturday night vigil with the Pope too so those are the big events I'm also looking forward just to get to see a little bit of Panama to see the churches I understand there's some beautiful churches there I always like when I visit new places just to walk around and sightsee and check out the churches check out the the food which i love latin american food so that's going to be no problem yeah um and uh yeah the whole experience i'm looking forward to well we're looking forward to hearing how it
0: went and we'll again like i said we'll talk about that next week on our live episode talking about world youth day and uh people can check out the itinerary and stuff they want to follow along and we're going to be doing some stuff as well with the radio station trying to share little updates on things as they come through so uh, check that out Uh, coming up we're going to be talking about Melchizedek and why the priests are considered part of this order that's coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. And one of the things that I think is worth taking a look at, and it comes up in today's readings, I'm curious to learn more about it, is Melchizedek. So the first reading on Monday, the 21st, was from the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, and it contains the line, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, uh, repeated in the responsorial psalm. And then we hear it again today in the first reading at Mass, Hebrews chapter 7 talks about Melchizedek and ends with, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what do we know about Melchizedek?
1: Why is he such an important biblical figure? Great question. Well, we only he's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. Okay, okay. He's mentioned in the book of Genesis and he's meant in Genesis chapter 14, and he's mentioned in Psalm 110, Psalm 110 verse four. Hmm. Um, And actually, the quote you mentioned from the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter five, you are a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. That's a quote from the Old Testament. Okay. That's a quote from Psalm 110, Uh it's Psalm 110 verse four. But the most we read about the priesthood of Melchizedek is in chapter seven of a letter to the Hebrews. Okay. So the author of the letter to the Hebrews wrote all of this about Melchizedek because he was talking about the priesthood of Christ. Mm-hmm. And he spoke about how Christ was a priest according to the order of Melchizedek in a radically new way. The reason that the author to the letter to Hebrews compared Jesus' priesthood to the priesthood of Melchizedek is he wanted to emphasize how Christ is a priest in a radically new way. So, what do we know about Melchizedek? Okay, we know from that Genesis account, a very brief text, text that he was a king and a priest, okay? okay. The um, When we read about him, Let me look up the passage, just if you'll give me a moment here. So we are, I have my Bible. Um, Genesis 14, verses 18 to 20, speak about, uh, and as I said, it's kind of a, a brief passage. It speaks about him with Abraham. There's a battle in which Abraham, with a pretty small group 318 soldiers defeated a coalition of four kings when they rescued his nephew lot and when abraham returned home from the battle melchizedek appears on the scene and he's identified as king of salem Hmm. and king of salem what does salem mean in the hebrew think of shalom okay uh-huh. So, what does Melchizedek do? He blesses Abraham and blesses the Lord who gave Abraham victory in that battle. Melchizedek is the first person in the Bible to be called a priest, hmm. a priest of God Most High. Abraham, then, in thanksgiving to God for his victory, gave to Melchizedek the priest, the king of Salem, a tenth of the spoils of the battle. What's a tenth? That's a tithe. Uh-huh. Okay? The standard portion of one's earnings that you return to God. So, that's it. Then we don't read anything more about Melchizedek.
0: Okay. Okay?
1: Okay? Um, the interesting thing is the... Although, again, in Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh-huh. The name Melchizedek, by the way, in its origins, means a king of righteousness. Hmm. So, think about this, Kyle. King, he's a king of righteousness. That's what his name means. But king of peace, king of Salem. Uh-huh. Righteousness and peace. Well, aren't those the qualities of the promised Messiah? Righteousness and peace. And in that little account in Genesis, it tells us that Melchizedek brought forth bread and wine, Hmm. and presumably as a thanksgiving offering for Abraham's victory. Now, we could recognize this as a foreshadowing of the Eucharist. It says in, in Hebrews chapter 7 that Melchizedek was without father, mother, or ancestry, without beginning of days or end of life. So the fact that in Genesis, we don't read anything about Melchizedek's parents or anything. You know, there's a lot about genealogy in the uh-huh. Old Testament. And in, in the book of Genesis, there's a lot. There's nothing hmm. about Melchizedek's descent, uh parents or grandparents or anything like that but what made one qualified to be an old testament priest it was because of your ancestry okay you had to be of the according to the law of moses you had to be of priestly lineage which was the tribe of of levi you know and descendants from aaron Well, this is before that. This is before Moses, et cetera, and Aaron. So there's nothing about any kind of lineage. Hmm. So why would he be an apt figure for Christ? Christ was not of the tribe of Levi. He's the new priest. He was of the tribe of Judah. So now you can see a reason why these different things came. No genealogy as far as, christ being eternal etc and it says in hebrews 7 that he remains a priest forever that Jesus' priesthood is the order of of the order of melchizedek means that he has a similar kind of priest uh a priesthood and it's something superior to the old testament priesthood It was Abraham, the great patriarch, who gave a tenth of his spoils, this offering of a tithe to Melchizedek. That was giving honor, you know, that you would give to a priest. Uh, It wasn't the other way around. What would the Levitical priests do? The Old Testament priests later, they would take tithes from the people, from their brothers, and here you have, like, the great patriarch, giving a tithe to to Melchizedek. So anyhow, I think it's important to see that um, when we talk about uh, Melchizedek, he's really a prefiguration of Christ, the high priest for eternity, the priest forever. Um, There was a lot of fascination about Melchizedek at the time of the New Testament, a very uh, mysterious figure, but it was the author to the Hebrews who who showed how Melchizedek really prefigures Christ, the Son of God. He represents Christ as the Messiah, who is king, Melchizedek was king, and priest, Uh and a king of justice, righteousness, Mm -hmm. and king of peace, Salem. And justice and peace, righteousness and peace were the gifts expected of the Messiah King. So you have these two titles joined here, King and Priest, Royalty and Priesthood. The glorified Christ is both King and Priest. And it's a superior priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. And Melchizedek also, by the way, blessed Abraham. So he's superior to Abraham. Uh, So you can see why he's a a good foreshadowing of Christ. And he also gets a a shout out in the Eucharistic prayer. He does in Roman canon, the Eucharistic prayer one. It mentions the bread and wine offered by your priest Melchizedek. Yeah,
0: because he offered bread and wine?
1: Yes, he did. Yep, yep. That's what we read in in the book of Genesis. Right. Right.
0: Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask it by going to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And coming up, we'll have some questions submitted by listeners about the clothes that priests wear, having someone present during adoration, and more on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman. I'll be asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. Our first question is, why do some dioceses allow priests to wear street clothes? Also, could it be for their protection against prejudice? God bless.
1: It's an interesting question. We have a norm of the church on on clerical garb. Canon 284 says that clerics are to wear suitable ecclesiastical garb according to the norms issued by the conference of bishops and according to legitimate local customs so the episcopal conference of the united states has accompanying legislation because it says we had to issue norms regarding clerical garb and basically says that outside the liturgy a priest should wear a black suit and roman collar that's the usual attire Uh and could also wear a black cassock Mm -hmm. that's at the discretion of the priest now when rome received a question about this canon they made it clear about the importance of clerical attire uh, but it doesn't rule out special situations if a priest is involved in recreation if he's you know in a particular situation he doesn't have to wear clerical garb Uh you know i mean it's not uh, i think that's the normal thing that you wear Mm -hmm. you know i'm normally wearing a black shirt roman collar Uh but if i'm going to work out or Mm -hmm. some kind of recreational activity i don't always wear the collar so it's not like um you know a religious habit or someone who's a member of a of a religious institute that may have a religious habit that they're to wear all the time. For a diocesan priest, we're not religious, so we aren't under special norms regarding what religious garb would be. Mm -hmm. But clerical garb is the normal garb that we would use. But we can wear other clothes befitting the situation. If I go home, I'm spending time at home with my family I'm not wearing a collar. Usually I'm in more relaxed clothing Uh and that's permissible.
0: Yeah. All right. Jeffrey Kuhn from St. Thomas Aquinas parish in West Lafayette asked, are people supposed to always be present with
1: the Eucharistic Jesus during perpetual adoration? Yes, I didn't know that um, Redeemer Radio went down to Lafayette. That's great. Well, you can stream it anywhere. Oh, through the stream. Through the website or through the app. You can listen to it anywhere in the world. Jeffrey, thanks for the question. Whenever the Holy Eucharist is exposed in solemn exposition, there has to always be someone present there praying. So we are not allowed, for example, to have perpetual adoration unless we ensure that there are always people there. Uh We try to have at least two. Who are there praying Mm -hmm. so some places where they've tried to have perpetual adoration they haven't some places they don't have it all the time because they don't have enough people who sign up to be there for Mm -hmm. adoration so they might have to limit the number of hours if they don't have enough people so yeah we can never have the eucharist exposed on the altar and not have people present
0: and I've heard of the situation where someone, and maybe this is why he's asking, where somebody walks into an adoration chapel and the Eucharist is exposed, but there's nobody in there. And they were just planning on a five-minute visit and leaving. And now they feel like, well, I can't leave. Right, right. It, should
1: usually I think there'd be like a phone number or something that you could call if, if there should be yeah okay. there should be some that's why I always think it's better to have two people right. so that if one something unforeseen happens yeah of course a person who signs up should if they know they're not going to be there should get a replacement right but I mean there's always a possibility that something happens you know let's say somebody oversleeps or or you know sure. or whatever can happen get sick and yeah but um and, and doesn't get a replacement I think it's always good to at least have a second person so you're sure that someone's gonna be there. Yeah.
0: All right. Victor Salzar from Sacred Heart Parish in Warsaw said, Your Excellency, could you please let me know what is your position regarding Canon Nine Fifteen? Could you please also let me know if there is any fraternal correction from your side to those bishops who knowingly disobey Canon Nine Fifteen?
1: Thanks, uh Victor. I guess I should let the listeners know what Canon 9, 915 is. <laughs> For those is. of us that aren't in the club of memorizing <laughs> yeah. the canon numbers. Yeah. Canon 915 says those who have been excommunicated or interdicted after the imposition or declaration of the penalty and others obstinately persevering in manifest grave sin are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. So it's the latter part of that, I think, that that Victor's probably referring to because mm-hmm. you know, if someone's excommunicated, it's very clear. That right. They're not able to receive the sacraments. But, but the other part is a little bit more difficult. Those who obstinately, now each word here is important, mm-hmm. obstinately perseveres in manifest grave sin. Uh-huh. You have to have all those things present right. in order not to admit someone to Holy Communion. So I think there's this all goes back, by the way, to, to St. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. If you recall, he says, For all who eat and drink without discerning the Lord's body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. Huh. It's a sacrilege for us to receive the Eucharist if we're, not, if we're in a state of mortal sin. Mm-hmm. When we look at uh, those different qualifying things, it has to be a grave sin. Something that is a mortal sin, something very, very serious. But it also, we're talking about a manifest grave sin. So we're talking about some, this is something that's very public. Okay. Okay. For example, if you have an abortionist mm-hmm. who, you know, comes up to receive Holy Communion, right. you can't give them Holy Communion. That's a manifest grave sin, mm-hmm. as long as that abortionist hasn't converted you know if they're persisting notice it says obstinately persists in manifest grave sin or Uh perseveres in manifest grave sin so i think you know bishops do abide by this i mean i don't know of i think you know i know one of the things that comes up sometimes in, in africa they would have an issue with with some who are still practicing polygamy okay and that's considered a manifest grave sin polygamists wouldn't be admitted to Holy Communion. We have situations here of people who are in invalid marriages or living in concubinage, you know, they are not to be admitted to Holy Communion. You know, if they're married outside the church living together, etc. You have to be a little careful. I mean, if there is a possibility of a couple that's in an invalid marriage, but they live together as brother and sister, they're able to receive communion um so that would be another thing i think probably that one of the most controversial areas would be politicians or those who have hold public office who are militantly supporting things that are against the church's teachings like abortion Mm -hmm. or euthanasia let's say someone who's involved in public funding of abortion i think that is manifest grave sin but again, you know, the, you have to look at all those those qualifications. Um, are they obstinately persevering? You know, one of the ways to get around that, if I have someone like that, I would want to meet with the person, uh-huh. and because it's only after meeting with them and trying to convince them to change that I would able to be able to make a, a judgment whether they're obstinate or not. Okay, you know that kind of question a lot of these, you know, it's a prudential judgment that a bishop would have to make after investigating, looking at all the circumstances. But the decision rests with the individual bishop, Mm -hmm. following this canon law, the canonical principles, pastoral principles, and then to try to come for what's the most prudent course of action in this case. There are some disagreements, to be honest. This can be kind of difficult sometimes. Uh I know some bishops who are more strict than others, but uh, we have the norm and it's a question of how to apply it. I haven't been in a position, I'm, I'm trying to remember since I've been a bishop, if, if this issue has come up. I think in some of the conference meetings, the issue has come up. I think because individual situations vary so much that it's, um, it's kind of difficult to come to consensus. But I do think it's a scandal to people when communion is given to someone who's clearly living in manifest grave sin like I mm-hmm. mean to give communion to a drug lord for example right or a mafia boss mm-hmm. or an abortionist that restriction from receiving denying holy communion i mean i think is necessary yeah yeah Alright, well you can ask
0: your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com AskBishop You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598 And we have some more questions About the timing of baptism and confirmation uh, If there were any subjects in school that Bishop didn't like And more coming up right here on Truth and Charity With Bishop Rhodes Brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, asking the questions that you've submitted for Bishop to answer. And before we get into the questions, we actually have a very dedicated and joyful listener that is
1: residing at Sacred Heart Home in a villa, Dolores Kais. Oh, that's so nice to hear. Dolores, let me just send out a special greeting to you. I'm glad that you enjoy Truth and Charity. I hope I get to meet you when I visit Sacred Heart Home. And I mean, I've been there, but I don't know if we've met before. So my special greetings to you, Dolores, and a special blessing to you and all the residents of Sacred Heart Home in Avila. Yeah.
0: One of our listeners asked, why do most people come into the church at Easter Vigil, but some on other feast days? I periodically will hear of someone whose conversion anniversary is some feast day other than Easter, but I always wonder why some people get to come in
1: early-slash-outside the
0: regular RCIA process.
1: Oh, thanks for that. The norm is to come into the church at the Easter vigil if you're going to be baptized. There's no norm if you're being received into the Catholic Church when you've been already baptized in another Christian community. Oh, That can be any time of the year, although many parishes, they do it at the Easter Vigil. Okay. Uh, That can be at any time. And oftentimes, those people being received into full communion were part of an RCIA class, unless a parish has two separate classes. Most don't. Uh At Notre Dame, they're separate. So I receive new Catholics twice a year at Notre Dame, once in Advent and once in the spring Uh when I do confirmations. But they do all their baptisms of students at the Easter Vigil, so they separate that. But there might be some special situations where an adult wouldn't be baptized at the Easter Vigil, obviously, if there's a danger of death. Sometimes there might be some delay. Someone's gone through RCIA, but they're not yet ready at the time of the Easter Vigil, so it might be postponed a few months. So you have to look at each individual circumstance.
0: I guess the next question is somewhat related. Why don't baptism and confirmation happen at the same time? Which I guess it does at
1: the Easter Vigil. Yes, at the Easter Vigil and Eastern Catholic churches. Okay. Even with infants, they baptize and confirm at the same time, Eastern Catholic churches. Uh But we have in the Western church, in the Latin church, it developed differently that confirmation is given at the age of reason or afterwards. So around the age of seven or afterwards here in our diocese it's we generally have it in eighth grade the sacraments of baptism and confirmation are intimately connected and in the church in the west it developed that the bishop was the one who did confirmations in other words in the beginning the bishop was doing both baptism and confirmation but as the church grew that was kind of not possible anymore and, and uh, infants were baptized by the local presbyters, the priests, but they still reserved confirmation to the bishop when he would get around. Uh-huh. So there's been a more of a separation because of that in the, in the Western church.
0: All right. We also had the following question. What was your hardest subject
1: in school? Was there a class you really didn't like? I think my hardest subject in school was chemistry. Okay. I don't know why. I was probably dense, (laughs) but, um, anyhow, um, is that a chemistry joke? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Dense. Was there a class I really didn't like, you know, I kind of like all the different areas of subjects that I had. I think probably it depended on the teacher. Uh, It wasn't so much the the subject, you know, there were better teachers and sometimes there were teachers who weren't so good. Most of my teachers were really good. But if there was a really boring teacher or one that I didn't like, then I didn't like it as much. But, but as I said, most- Any that you'd like to mention on air? I better not. Although you wouldn't know them because it's back, back home in Pennsylvania. I, I definitely have more memories of a lot of good teachers. Yeah.
0: All right. Another question. What are some guidelines we should use when choosing media like movies and TV shows? Are there some that are inappropriate even for
1: adults? Yeah. I mean we have I don't know the if you've seen the USCCB the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops we have our Catholic News Service which gives movie classifications kind of like the Motion Picture Association of America has different ratings G PG R or PG13 R NC17 no one under 17 and on are admitted Uh so i think it's good to look at the church's ratings the cns the classifications we have by catholic news service we use a1 a2 a1 is general patronage no problem a2 adults and adolescents that's pretty clear a3 only adults but then we have a4 which is adults with reservations because the films have may not they wouldn't be morally offensive in themselves but there might be some problems that for casual viewing sure but then we have l which says it's really troubling and then we have o which is morally offensive so there's no reason you shouldn't go to one that's ranked o of course you have to make prudential judgment i think parents need to be careful especially of what's suitable for children but there are movies that aren't suitable for adults either they're so morally offensive Uh so you would just suggest
0: I go to CNS,
1: yeah. Go to Catholic News Service. You can check it out online.
0: And our next question is, what is your favorite secular and religious movies? Oh, my goodness.
1: thats I I would probably say I love The Lord of the Rings. Uh Uh-huh. That comes to mind. I'm trying to think. Boy, uh, secular movies. You know, I kind of like historical things. I like historical kinds of movies. Uh Uh-huh. There's sometimes I like good dramas, some comedies, but what really stand out? Um, Braveheart, uh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'd have to think about. It. Lord of the Rings comes to mind. I yeah. really love that. Uh, as far as religious movies, I'd say Passion of the Christ. Yeah, uh, years ago, I think it was in the 70s. Jesus of Nazareth was really good. Uh-huh. A you, lot of them I like. Yeah. You
0: mentioned the Paul Apostle of Christ. Uh,
1: yeah, couple, that was good. Weeks ago, months that was, ago, that, that I enjoyed. Yeah. Mm-hmm so and even some of the old traditional ones you know Bells of St. Mary's that years ago um, okay. what's your favorite ones Catholic ones Kyle
0: I did really like the the Paul Apostle of Christ I thought that was yeah. really well done and uh, yeah of course Passion
1: is classic not fun to watch right but super powerful yeah yeah, yeah. do you remember the Jesus of Nazareth movie back in the 70s yeah. that was good I mean it's not the same quality that we have today but right. it's good yeah any secular favorite movies you have you like Lord of the Rings too. You know what? I cannot get into Lord of the
0: Rings. Don't really? don't get mad. Don't get mad. Don't oh get my th- goodness, Kyle. Yeah, I I don't know what did it you is. read the
1: books? No. Oh, Okay. Uh, I'm I'm a horrible reader. Uh. <laughs> 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 All and right. You take the kids to the movies sometimes. We do. Yeah. We uh, recently saw Mary Poppins. Oh, how was that? I, it, I saw. some. It was good. Was it? Because yeah. there were some
0: poor reviews. Yeah, I can see where they would be coming from. But as if you just take it as like some
1: yeah. Some, Kids entertainment. Was, I remember my little sister, like, that was her favorite thing when she was a kid. She yeah. loved Mary Poppins. Yeah. Uh, go around the house singing the songs. And
0: <laughs> My sister loved it. She thought it was the best thing ever. Oh, good. So, good. She was a big fan of the original. Yeah. All right. Finally, someone asked, and I believe this was submitted anonymously, but I, I feel like this person should own up to it. <laughs> If you had to pick a favorite between the two Catholic high schools in the South Bend area, which would it be? Here's a hint. Go Knights.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I get asked that question a lot. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I got a question when I was at Bishop Bishop, uh, Dwenger High School. One of the kids asked in front of the whole student body, which was my favorite high school in the diocese? Uh, (laughs) I said, really? I have four favorite high schools. Yeah. Did I tell you, I don't know if I said this on one of the show, but when I've been to the Bishop Lors, Bishop Dwenger games, I have a sweatshirt that they made for me. One half of it is oh, Dwenger, and the other nice. half of it is Lors. I got to get one for South Bend. One half St. Joe's, uh-huh. one half Marion. Yeah. Um, but, you know, each each of the high schools is, is great. I, I really honestly don't have favorites. I think they're all wonderful. All good Catholic identity, too. Yeah. How often are you able to get to the high schools? <laughs> I get I do a full day once a year at each of the four high schools, okay. but I also will go. You know, there are special things that I might stop by for. I wish I could do it more often because it's always a great experience. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes they'll I'll come in and teach a class. Sometimes a teacher will, uh, will make a special request. I've done that a few times. I can't do it a lot. My schedule <laughs> doesn't allow it. But yeah, or great. sometimes go to a show or a sp- or sporting event. I wish I could do more of those as well. Uh-huh. I wasn't able to go to the state championship game that Bishop Dwenger won. I felt kind of bad. So when I was there a couple weeks ago, I said to the football team, I'll have you over to the Archbishop Noel Center for pizza for lunch then <laughs> I turned you to the principal and said, I said is that alright <laughs> <Yeah>, what, <laughs> too what late was now. he going to say <laughs> yeah.
0: get revolt if he says no yeah alright well thank you again Bishop and remind people to keep you and all the pilgrims in Panama in their prayers uh, next week we will have a special live episode getting an update on how things went uh, but before we go could we get your Episcopal
1: blessing sure the Lord be with you and with your spirit blessed be the name of the Lord now and forever our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle.
2: Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.